Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The wise men were on a long journey toward Jesus. Given the fact also that they were Gentiles, non-Jews, just like us, the analogy of what they did to us sort of immediately presents itself, right? On a long journey toward Jesus. So I want to highlight uh, a handful of aspects of the wise men and their journey and what they did when they met Jesus because I think it's instructive for our own pursuit of God in our Christian life. The first thing that I want to point out is that they utilized their natural knowledge in pursuit of God. They were trained as philosophers. Um, Heather's a philosopher, in case you didn't know that. (laughs) And astronomers. And they must have been informed at some level of the Jewish people and their prophecies. And a number of uh, scholars have tried to figure out, where did these Persian magi get some knowledge of of the Jewish people? And we actually see a handful of places in the Old Testament where there's this sort of um, touchstone, this connecting point between the Persians and the Jews. One is with Balaam the prophet, and the other is with Daniel, um, who was installed actually as head of the magi when he was there um, in Persia, in Babylon. And these Magi, they used their academic studies to help them find God. They were just doing their thing. They were just learning as much as they could about the stars and the nature of the universe and how it works. And they gathered these stories. And because of that natural knowledge, God used that as part of their pursuit of himself. I want to be clear. Academic knowledge on on its own doesn't take us to God. It can, but it can just as easily lead away. I think... um, I'm sure you've sort of seen on documentaries and things, um, one physicist who's a Christian looks at the sort of intricacies of the cosmos and sees the hands of an all-wise, almighty God, and an atheist physicist can be examining that same phenomena with the same level of detail and conclude that there's no God at all. Both are invested in the same academic knowledge, which means we should be careful to not put too much investment in knowledge itself, but we don't want to swing the other way then and then disparage knowledge, right? God clearly used it in the case of the Magi. The catalyst, what makes the difference as to whether knowledge, natural knowledge, is useful for pursuit of God or not, is if in our hearts we're seeking God. Right? That seems to be the thing that God loves almost most of all, like at the root of things, is seek and you will find. If you actually are looking for God, he will orchestrate things so that you find him. You might have to wait for a while. The Magi didn't, they still had to journey a thousand miles. Um, But they sought and the Lord allowed them to be found. Um, I think that's the real proof actually that the Magi weren't just interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake, is that they actually mounted whatever, you know, traditionally camels or whatever it was that they they used and and made that thousand mile journey. You can... um, Imagine them uh, in Persia, a thousand miles away from Bethlehem, seeing some strange astronomical phenomenon, maybe corresponding with uh, stars that they interpreted to mean, you know, connected to the Jewish people, Um, and just sort of saying, oh, a new king has been born. Put that in my diary. What should we study next? Right? And I'm sure there were Magi still in Persia who didn't make the journey. But these ones, 
they actually thought this knowledge was worth following and they wanted to find out what was on the other side of it. And they put, as it were, their own skin in the game by making what would have been an arduous journey. They up and left um, because they didn't want to just know that a king had been born to the Jewish people. This is sort of an unprecedented, unprecedented event, right? That tons of kings had been born in Israel and never before had Magi been that interested or sent some, you know, some convoy to go and pay homage. This is a, a, a unique phenomenon. They, these specific uh, wise men, they had the desire to worship, right? not just to know, but to worship, to actually encounter and pay homage to the God that they were trying to find out about. First, dimly, through sort of tracing stars in the skies, and ultimately then, face to face, when they encountered the baby Jesus. Um, One of the things that stuck out to me is really interesting about this story, and I think also illustrates how often God deals with us, is that they saw this sign in the sky that they interpreted um, as meaning a king had been born to the Jews, and so they naturally were like, well, where would that be? Well, probably the city of the king, Jerusalem, right? The royal city of David, which is actually not, of course, where Jesus was born. Right? They were doing the best that they could, and they were actually a few miles off. But God had just given them this um, general direction that they followed in faith, as it were. Um, you imagine, they must have been pretty bewildered. Here they have, they've made this huge journey. They've showed up at, I mean, everybody knew Jerusalem is called the royal city. They show up at the royal city, and they're like, where's the new king? And it's like, what king? Because he was the king. I love Matthew is this sort of very subtle irony. And Herod, the king, <laughs> right, was frightened, right? Because they're looking at a man. He's wearing a crown. They're in his palace. And they're like, where's the new king? That's why Herod was frightened. And you can imagine what that must have been like for the Magi. Like, what? We've just, like, we interpreted the star sign. We traveled all this way. And nobody knows anything about this. So Herod has to inquire of the prophecies. And Herod, it shows that he must have clued in that this wasn't just some ordinary royal birth. He says, where's the Messiah to be born? That something that would call the Gentiles forth to Jerusalem must mean that the Messiah is here. And it's then um, that the Magi get their next direction. Right? Again, God working through his people. Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is going to be born. Bethlehem. God didn't give the Magi the entire roadmap at the start. And I, that, what an, how true is that to our own experience? Go in this direction. Okay. Okay, now what? Okay, now go here, over here. Right, one piece of time that we would trust, that we would demonstrate that we are putting our skin in the game at each step of the way. It's also part of, um, I, I think there's a great mystery why in the wisdom of the fathers of the ages past, why do we read Ephesians 1 um, on the second Sunday of Christmas? I haven't quite figured that out yet. But one thing I think is that there's all this language of predestination and orchestration. And maybe we see that in this gospel story today. Oh, no, we certainly see that in this gospel story today, that through the God of the universe calling these strange magi and actually using them as a signal to Herod and to the priests of the temple to say, the Messiah is on your doorstep, right? It's about to happen. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel that you've all been waiting for um, is about to take place, that God is using the magi to instruct the Jewish people, even as he's using the Jewish people to direct the Magi to Bethlehem. It's a wonderful orchestration. No sooner had um, they left the city of Jerusalem that it says the star appeared again. 
And you can ask, well, what kind of star appears again? And this is one of the things that you know, historical scholars of the Bible love to try and figure out. And it's amazing. We have all these sort of Chinese astronomical records. And it's like, yeah, there were all these strange astral phenomena in like 6 BC to 4 BC, supernova and comets and, you know, comets with long periods that would, you'd see in the eastern sky and then you'd see again in the western sky. So it, it probably was a comet. Um, sorry, I, I have a cold and it seems to blow my nose. Um, I will not drink directly from the chalice. I will intinct at communion. So I won't infect you all, I promise. Um, my money, I think it probably was a comet, um, but the number of church fathers thought maybe it was just an angel, because how else could it seem to appear to stop above a particular house, right? A star could maybe get you to Bethlehem, which, by the way, is about 10 miles from Jerusalem southwest, um, but it, it probably wouldn't get you rightly to the exact house, so maybe it was just an angel. We'll never know. They interpreted it as a star. So they go to where the Holy Family was, um, and you can imagine the Magi's surprise that they had just been in Herod's temple, which was grand. I mean, gold over stone, you know, jewels and purple robes, everything lavish. And that guy doesn't know anything about a new king. And they go to Bethlehem, which is kind of a podunk town. Um, and they go inside this little home, and that's where the star had led them to a baby, just this little baby in this kind of what looks like a peasant family. And that's the king that they traveled a thousand miles for. When they finally arrive, oh gosh, I'm so tired of blowing my nose. <laughs> when they finally arrive, there you go, sanitized. I'm just keeping you in suspense. <laughs> when they finally arrive, um, they do what they had set out to do from the beginning. What they said to Herod, the reason that they'd come, they worship. They worship. And their worship takes a, a threefold action. First, it says they fall down. What a great picture, these dignified philosopher things that we kind of interpret traditionally as kings, right? Like we three kings. I don't know if they were kings, but they certainly had the dignity of kings. And here they are falling down before a baby Jesus in this peasant family um, as a gesture of that they recognize that they're in the presence of one greater than themselves. What a tremendous act. They fell down with humility before the Christ child. They fell down and worshipped him. The word worship there... Um, in context, when we look at how that word is used in other literature, it means um, kissing hands and feet in a reverential manner. We still know that gesture today from period dramas and things, right? Like you kiss the queen's hand, or in the old days they used to kiss the pope's foot. And I just love this picture. I kind of never realized this detail until preparing for this morning, that these wise men kissing baby Jesus' feet the way you would kiss the foot of a king. That's such a tender, um, such a startling picture, right? This peasant baby being worshipped and adored as like the highest monarch of all by the Magi. After kissing his feet, the third action of their worship was the giving of gifts, costly gifts, which is an important detail. I love that um, line in 1 Samuel when it says, King David says, um, I will not offer to God gifts that cost me nothing. And I think that sometimes is the temptation in whatever arena we are called to give to God, whether it is contributing to church or to whatever other arena God has called you to give um, to himself through different ministries. We want, the temptation is just to kind of skim off what we could do without, right? But to, like David, I will not give to God gifts that cost me nothing. It's a challenge to me in my own giving. Um, the gifts of the wise men, and I'm sure you've heard sermons on this before, have a famous symbolism with regards to Jesus. Gold, which is the gift signifying royalty. Um, incense, which was only ever offered to deity, 
right? When you think about the Roman times, there would have been all these pagan statues that people offered incense before because incense was what they understood that gods wanted because it has this sort of ascending quality, right? So they're recognizing the deity of the one whose feet they just kissed. And then myrrh, which uh, the church fathers interpret as a prophecy because myrrh is what you anoint the body of a corpse with when someone's died, as a prophecy that this king, who is also God, is also going to die. Tremendous uh, symbolism in the gifts. But they don't just have symbolism for Jesus. I think they also have symbolism uh, for us. Um, gold, the analogy is pretty clear. It means gold. <laughs> Money. Right? Actually giving to God of our substance. Right? Where your treasure is, I think we metaphorize treasure. It's not a metaphor. Where your treasure is, where your dollars are, there your heart will be also. The thing you're invested in the most financially, I would wager, is the thing that occupies your thoughts the most. It's just the way we work. God knew we ticked that way. Where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. Um, but like the Magi, we're called to give of our real treasure. Um, incense, we know from St. John's Revelation, is a figure for prayer. That part of our worship, part of what pleases God as our adoration, is actually coming to him with requests. Right? Regular and frequent requests. A mantra that um, shaped my life forever is that the traditional sort of, and I'm coming into Anglicanism from being formed in the Baptist tradition. And in the tradition I grew up in, um, at, at the tradition I went, I have a, a fellow alumnus from my undergraduate who's here today, um, Haley, who's Terry's daughter. You know, the tradition we were part of at Wheaton was like, if you want to pray seriously, you pray for like a four-hour chunk in like a prayer room somewhere. Like, and what I've learned is the ancient way of prayer was better frequent than long. And that was like a whole paradigm shift for me. Of like, I don't have to pray for a four-hour chunk. That's like almost impossible if you're not a saint already. Like, <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it's like distraction difficulty. Like, but no, the, 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 the habits that the ancient church calls us to is frequency. Pray a one-minute prayer 15 times a day. That is a, is a much more um, uh, earnest and, and really truthful way of praying. Um, and and the part of our worship signified by this incense is the frequent offering of incense. Incense burns up in a couple minutes. Right? You put on something, it's all burned up. Pray often and frequently as part of our worship to God. <coughs> Lastly, myrrh, the balm of the dead. I think this is a symbol that um, the worship that's most pleasing to God is worship that's accompanied by a life of uh, self-denial. What's the connection there? Well, the biblical, the sort of old language is the putting to death of the flesh. Right? The old word was mortification. Right, the putting to death. The worship is most pleasing when it's accompanied by a life that isn't just seeking to live for comforts. It's the temptation that we would live in Christmas tide feasting all year long. We're not called to do that. We are called to feast in, in due season. But generally, the life of a Christian should be characterized by refusing pleasures and comforts, right, by putting to death the longings of the flesh as part of our worship. You know, we pray that prayer every Eucharist. Um, and it, it adds in richness from each time the thing where we offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, right, meaning sort of rational, conscious, holy, and living sacrifice. Right, each time we celebrate communion, it's not just us receiving the body of Christ. We're also placing ourselves sort of in some spiritual, mystical way afresh on the altar. Right, when I pray that, I'm praying it for all of you, and I kind of in my head imagine all of you and myself, all of us together, we present ourselves to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. Part of our worship. The final thing I think we take away from the wise men um, is that last note when it says, after they'd worshipped Jesus, 
they departed back home by another way. I again, has a wonderful kind of immediate analogy to it. Not that we shouldn't leave church in the same way we came. Right? The hope, if we've been engaged with our ears and our hearts even a little, is that through participating in worship, we would encounter Christ in word and in sacrament. And that through that encounter, we would be kind of recalibrated. Right? That what happens is in the midst of daily life, every last one of us, the sort of natural gravity pulls us towards selfishness. And then in coming and celebrating the Eucharist and hearing about the selflessness of Christ, we'd be recalibrated. We walk out of here differently, by a different way. Oh yeah, Lord, I'm called to be your servant, not the boss. Lord, I'm called to love others, not seek to be like served by them. Uh, and, and, and recalibrate. And of course, we forget. So, I mean, it's painful to be sometimes by Sunday afternoon, in some mental habit, something, I've kind of regressed into, ah, oh, Carrie, take care of the kids, I just need to rest. Or something. No, like, I'm not. And that's why we keep coming. Why do we come? Some, a lot of New Anglicans will ask, why do we do the same prayers over and over? Because we need the same medicine over and over. Right? We're, 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 we have an infection that just won't go away. A very appropriate <laughs> metaphor. Um, <laughs> that we constantly need recalibration from... Just like the wise men, we too should depart by another way. So I hope you see that um, though it's ultra familiar, we still have a lot to learn from the wise men. Um, I love that they're called the wise men because the Bible exhorts us to wisdom. So be wise. Be like the wise men. Um, In seeking Jesus, in your knowledge, in worshiping him with your heart and with your substance, um, with all of your gold and your frankincense and your myrrh, ultimately. Um, And so like them, meet Christ face to face. Amen.